Semiconductors are the incredibly complex computer chips that power all modern electronics. There's been an increased focus on semiconductors of late, with the passing of the CHIPS Act in the United States and tensions in the Taiwan Strait over Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Fergus Hansen speaks to Alex Capri and Professor Bob Clark about the semiconductor supply chain, how geopolitics play into this resource, and why semiconductors matter. They discuss Aspie's new report, Australia's Semiconductor Moonshot, which details how Australia can develop a semiconductor manufacturing industry. Bob and Alex, it is so nice to be sitting down with you to talk about this new report that you've put out. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure working with you both and learning from you both as we went through this process. The title of your report, Australia's Semiconductor National Moonshot. What I love about this is it's, it's big and bold. It's something new. Can you start by telling us just a little bit about what this report's about? And maybe we'll kick to you, Alex, to start us off. Certainly, Fergus, and, and thank you. It has been a pleasure working with Aspie and with uh, Robert Clark, my, my partner. The landscape, the international landscape, geopolitically, economically, globalization as we've known it for the past three-plus decades, is going through a dramatic change. It's going through fundamental changes. We are going through a perfect storm, essentially. So we have, we have geopolitical issues. The rise of China has, has produced a rash of countermeasures in the form of export controls, sanctions, uh, controls on investment and technology transfer. That, of course, has been playing out uh, in global supply chains. Then we have the COVID pandemic, which has exposed single source supply chains around the world. And as it turns out, many of those originate in China or run through uh, critical uh, supply chain hubs in China. And then we have climate change and the pressures that are coming to bear on global supply chains around carbon footprints, for example, the prospect of carbon taxes being imposed, the move to decarbonize the global economy. All of these things have converged and have put in the spotlight the most strategic commodities. And of course, semiconductors are amongst the most strategic of commodities. So who makes them? who has access to them, uh, who has the expertise, and who controls those supply chains. So Australia, like any other country, must learn to treat uh, semiconductors as not only a public good, but a highly strategic commodity that is linked directly to national security, economic security, and even social stability. Brilliant. So Bob, what, what's the moonshot in Australia? You know, for Australia? What's, what's our role here? What should we be doing? Yeah, no, look, uh, it's a good question, um, Fergus. And can I also say it's been a pleasure working with uh, Alex on this. Uh, um, look, I, I guess my role in, in coming onto the moonshot question has uh, been how do you map that very big global picture, which is of extreme importance to, uh, to Australia, um, particularly in the context of its um, alliances, its security alliances, how do we map that onto what do we do in Australia? Because we, unlike the United States, for example, um, and indeed even the UK, um, we're coming from a low commercial base uh, in Australia. We have excellent R&D, as good as anywhere in the world, 
in, in a raft of semiconductor fabrication technologies and design, we have a number of niche but high-quality companies, both in manufacturing and design, that do, you know, if you like, development of a prototype. But what we don't have is is volume manufacturing of the scale that, that we actually need as a nation going forward. And so semiconductors is an enabling technology. Um, it underpins the digital world, the entire digital world. So you could take all of Australia's manufacturing initiatives under its recent uh, government uh, priority list. All of them require semiconductors. So the moonshot, in a nutshell, is how do we respond to this geopolitical situation, secure our supply chains, but what do we do on Australian soil? And so we've made a number of recommendations as to what do we have right now, where do we want to get to, what might it take? And it brings in into play things that uh, are uncomfortable discussions in, in many ways. And the uncomfortableness is we're not used to talking about government intervention in markets, um, but those conversations we have to have. So as we were doing the report, um, uh, the CHIPS Act uh, in the United States and in Europe were breaking around us. So there's this delicate balancing going on that government needs to get involved, but not so involved that they repress the entrepreneurial spirit and those market forces which underpin our democracy. And just for, for people that might not have felt like they're, they're comfortable with what a semiconductor is or, you know, where they've seen one, can you just tell us, you know, a couple of sentences, Alex, what is a semiconductor and, and where do people come across them in their day-to-day lives? So semiconductors are ubiquitous. They're in everything today. They are sort of the, the nervous uh, system and the heart and the brains of any kind of, quote, smart technology you know, or not, not even smart technology now, pretty much anything from a toaster oven to a smartphone to a nuclear submarine. Uh, and so they are absolutely essential. Countries, companies, public institutions, private institutions, it doesn't matter, all are invested in, in assuring that there is a steady, reliable supply of semiconductors um, that, that will then feed into all emerging and foundational industries for virtually everything. And Bob, you've, I think you were involved in um, some of the really early foundational work here in Australia on um, semiconductors. People probably don't associate Australia with having a semiconductor industry, but as you said in your remarks, we do actually have quite a bit of capability. It just hasn't been pushed towards that uh, large-scale commercial end yet. Yeah, um, that, I think that's true, Fergus. So look, semiconductors are complicated, they're somewhat out of sight of the, the, the general discussions in the public domain. When we talk about we, people will be much more familiar with quantum computing, with artificial intelligence. But in all of those technologies, um, 5G, etc., their mobile phones, or personal computers, at the heart of all of those technologies are semiconductors. And so the big question for Australia is, do we just buy them from somewhere else? Somebody else does that really hard technology. And, and in a just-in-time, 
you know, um, equitable trading global supply chain sense. That was that was fine. But I think what Alex has just set out is that that's all changed, you know, uh, due to various um, disruptions of our supply chains, some of them, the most important one, geopolitical disruptions to our supply chain and the potential harm that that could do to us as a nation. We have to make a decision, do we get involved? Do we have a manufacturing footprint on Australian soil and do we have a base to build that from? And I was involved in the early days, I guess, when um, we started quantum computing in Australia when we took a semiconductor approach. And I think it's fair to say that the the research and development semiconductor network that we have, principally through the Australian National Fabrication Facility, which is a um, national collaborative research infrastructure scheme government program, that's spread across 18 Australian universities with eight nodes, and there are other capabilities. There's real capability there at the R&D level. The question is, how do we go from that to you know something like an Intel fabrication plant on Australian soil that generates high-skilled jobs, an Australian workforce that really understands this technology, um, you know, what does sovereignty mean in this case? I think I think I, we're erring more, Alex and I would err more on the side of partnership within our secure alliances. So, you know, partnering with, say, a, a US uh, fabrication company on Australian soil is a very good starting point, such as an Intel or a, um, a Global Foundries from XIBM, if you like. Um, the important point is educating the Australian workforce, getting involved in those jobs, and growing our capability on the ground so that uh, we are a contributor and, and not just a customer. Well, let me come back on that, on the Intel piece. I mean, because this is a little bit like a return to the 1990s, because I think you were involved, Bob, in a, an early pitch by Intel to set up a fabrication facility here in Australia. Yes. Um, can you tell us why that initiative fell over in the 90s and we didn't become a, a yeah fabrication you know manufacturer here and what's different now why would it work now yeah look it's just a personal view because i you know i'm not privy to obviously the commercial decisions of a corporation like intel i mean they have to make very hard nosed decisions but in the 1990s the geopolitical situation was quite different you know we we had open markets they, they weren't um, under threat companies like intel they're looking how do they optimize their workforce uh what government incentives are there to set up in one particular country as opposed to another. And I think rightly at that time, Australia took a decision, I think, that, you know, it, it wasn't doing going to do any special favours for any particular sector of the community. It was a very much a market-driven uh, approach and I, and I think a, a fair approach at that particular time. But things have changed and they've changed somewhat abruptly just in the last few years. Around the world, governments are finding they, they need to intervene now. Um, hence the CHIPS Act, you know, providing for the very first time subsidies, tax offs, tax concessions to set up and equip foundries um, on, uh, onshore them, as they call it, um, uh, uh, to guarantee their supply chain should um, someone wish to do us harm uh, in that respect. So the situation's changed. So the reasons why an Intel probably went to Ireland and didn't set up in Australia, the, the landscape's changed. And um, I think if Australia responds within its alliances in a way that the United States has, 
uh, and mirrors that to some extent, the whole settings could be different, and it might now might be the right time. Well, just on the on the US piece, um, Alex, you have this great example in the paper, I think, of Purdue University and some of the um, changes we saw them there in reaction to the Chips Act. Can you tell us what that model is and why that might be workable here in Australia? Yeah, so so chips in the US, um, you know, which sets aside at least $52 billion uh, for, you know, research, development, uh, working with companies, uh, another about 20, $24 billion in tax incentives, and then there's a lot more money for broad technology. That has generated a lot of excitement. There is and continues to be a great deal of support from uh, private industry in the U.S. All of the major semiconductor companies, the automotive companies, any company that requires microchips, which is, as we've discussed, is is almost all emerging and foundational industries. Everybody's excited about this. So going to Purdue, uh, we have Skywater, uh, which is a, a small, uh, mature uh, semiconductor uh, company that uh, has invested $1.8 billion in producing commercial scale chips. Uh, and it is linked to Purdue University in that they're doing, they're doing research and development there. They're creating a talent pipeline. Uh, Purdue has, uh, has implemented a degree program in semiconductors. This is a perfect model yeah. for what can happen here in Australia. It was just a, a great reminder about the extreme sophistication involved in this technology and the, the type of manufacturing we're talking about is, I think in people's minds, often manufacturing is, you know, putting a car together or something like that. This is real, you know, meter thick concrete slabs working at incredibly minute scale. The machinery involved in this and the number of processes is just mind blowing. Can you, can you give people a sense of just how incredibly sophisticated this technology is and just give us a, a kind of a sense of where on the spectrum you're proposing that Australia intervenes are we going to become a you know a Taiwan you know cutting edge manufacturer or where do we where are we going to end up yeah look uh, the latest um, what they call leading edge chips Fergus um, in, in uh, silicon in, in silicon technology um uh, uh, what's called a, a two nanometer node. It, it, um, it sort of is related to the smallest feature size in the sort of the etch process of making the semiconductor. Extremely small. Two nanometers is a uh, two billionth of a meter, you know. Yeah. So uh, we're talking extremely small feature sizes, so billions of transistors on a chip. And like things like the Earth's um, movement are impacting the, the processes. Yeah, so the whole the machinery the tools to build these advanced logic chips. And these advanced logic chips are the ones that are in the same breadth um, mooted as uh, leading into artificial intelligence applications, um, which will be an important development for all countries, uh, quantum computing and, uh, and other really advanced communications, telecommunications chips. So we're not talking about those. I mean, to set up a, a one of the labs that's been set up for that is in excess of $30 billion. You know, that's a, you can't go from where we are in Australia with just an R&D foothold to a, a really advanced leading edge logic chip. That, that's just not sensible uh, and indeed uh, arguably not affordable, you know. So, and it's not just a question of having the money, it's a know-how. Um, it takes years and years of know-how, the access to the equipment and so on. 
I, I think one of the wow factors is, um, uh, you know, for, for a even a even a five nanometer chip, um, you're looking at millions of transistors that are the size of a human genome yeah. stacked on top of each other on an atomic scale. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, to achieve that kind of technology yeah. is frankly a human zenith yeah. in technological yeah. uh, advancement yeah. and the barriers to entry to achieving that sort of value chain are next to impossible to achieve. Uh, which is why uh, countries that don't have access to the broad range of the value chain yeah. from the design software and all of the fabulous uh, components um, are virtually locked out of that process. So, you know, this doesn't bode well for China. Australia, on the other hand, um, has a lot of friends that have this technology. And so through friend shoring, and, you know, uh, ring, uh, ring fencing uh, with the right partners, the United States, Europeans, Japanese, um, Australia has a fighting chance at, you know, in the long game, 20 years from now, Australia could very well have a leading edge semiconductor fab. But what we're arguing in this paper is we start with the mature technologies, which are highly strategic they feed into very strategic industries, automotive, agritech, regtech, uh, you know, uh, clean tech and so on. Um, and so, so they're a foundational, they're, they are a foundational technology that not only achieves economic and national security, but also grows the emerging tech economy. Maybe we can pivot to the, to the specifics of this model. Can you, can you walk us through... Yeah. what that's going to look like in Australia yeah. if we go down this yeah. pathway. Well, let me um, reinforce what Alex has just said. Yeah, there's a very long game here of moving towards leading edge ships, but we have to start at a sensible starting point in Australia. And, you know, I, I, I would hope that um, next generations of Australians will get into that space, you know, because it's important as a nation that, that we do. Um, but coming back to the here and now, we have an R&D base, which is networked across all states in Australia, it's well connected to our university system. Half of our universities are connected into that semiconductor network. What examples have we found overseas of how to grow from such a base to uh, commercial high-throughput manufacturing? So the per Purdue um, Skywater is an interesting one where a, what you might call a trailing-edge foundry. So this is 90-nanometer, 120-nanometer node, for which there are real markets that are very important in medtech, cleantech, uh, and so on for Australia. Um, those fabrication plants are far more affordable. The requirements, the stringent requirements on their technology uh, is a good entry point for Australian capability. And what they're finding is that Rather than just putting that plant down somewhere in a vacuum and doing your manufacturing, in the US they're saying, where is that R&D pocket of expertise? Where is that educated workforce, my talent pipeline coming in? And so of all states in the United States, which you might think uh, um, is the most surprising, is Indiana uh, has been the one that they've zeroed in on in that particular example, per partnering with the University of Purdue. Personally, I like Indiana, worked. but... Okay. You know, so that, that that's a great example. Um, 
Now, if you're looking at Australia, we found two examples. One was Silanosome conductors um, are set up at the University of Adelaide. Um, and the reason it's set up there is precisely that. It's set up with one of our R&D modes. And they're doing their, um, uh, their, uh, their prototyping, uh, pilot production, if you like, uh, where fabrication occurs elsewhere, but high throughput fabrication. But that's a very good model for Australia. Um, Microsoft QStation is set up at the University of Sydney. And again, that juxtaposition of manufacturing pilot production sitting right alongside an R&D base at an affordable level, that capability will lead to a close co-location of a, a high-throughput high foundry. So if we get down to the heart of what we're proposing, we're saying we have this R&D base. If you couple that with government incentives similar to the US and European CHIPS Act, uh, which is a level of government intervention, all of those things taken together will be very attractive um, for a foundry to locate to Australia. The educational system, uh, the uh, a place where they can do their prototyping and pilot production, a skilled workforce that is coming through, access to things that we have, water, 24-7 airport, uh, to ship the chips to the world. All of these settings are right, and uh, I strongly feel that although we don't have, we, we almost have near, near negligible um, manufacturing of semiconductors in Australia, apart from some unique and, and quite good examples, but they're small, uh, we can do this. This is eminently doable, but it will require some bold decisions, and those, those decisions uh, will not be easy for government, particularly in a budget that's pressed in all, di all different directions. Um, so government has to make these tough calls. They've got to decide where they're going to allocate industry funds. We've got, um, you know, they could go after cars. They could go after clothing and textiles as they have in the past. It seems like semiconductors are sort of like the concrete foundation across all industries. Is that your take? Is that why the government should do this uh, now? Final word, Alex. Final word, Bob. Yeah, just very quickly. Uh, uh, semiconductors are the ultimate enabler. Uh, for any of these industries that we've been talking about. But because the investments are large, uh, because the value chains are highly complex, governments have to step in and they have to provide risk insurance, basically. They have to be able to, uh, to provide the funding that Bob has talked about because it's a big, big risk for companies to, to, to spend that kind of money to get yeah. into that space. Yeah. So it's just not going to happen without, without governments playing the right role. Yeah, look, I, I think that's absolutely right and might be useful if I give an idea of what scale we're proposing because as has often been said, a strategy without a costing is not a strategy, you know. So um, we, we've taken our sh a shot at costing this. Now, it's always um, – with semiconductors, the details count, you know. Um, how many wafers per month do you really want to chip out? At what level of precision? What markets are you – aiming at what type of semiconductor strengths are you going going to build on all of those details will ultimately be very important in defining the investment but if you look at it in the broad as we have effectively what we felt would be a good start um, semiconductors bifurcate into two different types there's one which is called compound semiconductors which are made of uh, two or more elements such as gallium arsenide for example gallium nitride um, indium phosphide, or you have 
um, the, 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 what has been the traditional semiconductor market, still the biggest and strongest, the silicon, um, purely silicon-based uh, chips. Compound semiconductors uh, have advantages in, in they can emit and absorb light, which gives them a lot of applications in medtech. They are fast, so applications in 5G. They uh, can handle higher power, so things like electric vehicles and so on, chips for, for cars and so on. But Silicon CMOS has advantages also in mobile phones, uh, processors, purely because of the, the advanced scale at, the, at which that technology has been developed over many, many, many decades with billions of dollars of investment. Ideally, you'd like to have a footprint in both. So we're proposing if we had uh, – we have strengths in R&D in uh, compound semiconductors um, in our network – if we had uh, a foundry at the sort of $2 billion level um, on, on Australian soil, and similarly if we had a silicon foundry on Australian soil at about the same level, I mean the Skywater facility at Purdue is $1.8 billion US, $2 billion Australian. If we have both of those, but, that's, but at a mature node, so we just do the trailing edge, not the leading edge at this point. Um, it's going to take us 20, 30 years to get to that point. If we have both of those as footprints, that will be a, an excellent start. And if they're connected to our um, university and our R&D node, national fabrication capabilities that we do have, that's a very good way to start. So we're, we're envisaging that these companies would form public-private partnerships with these R&D nodes to do this pilot production and coupled with if the government then provides incentives saying, well, if you come here, you know, we'll, we'll provide incentives like in Europe and the United States to help that foundry set up, to help that foundry be equipped, to manage that risk, uh, as it were. That coupled with knowledge of a good educational system, a good skilled workforce coming from a high R&D base and a locked-in public-private partnership, which a government can be involved in, that might be a game-changer. And we haven't had those settings before. That's a great note to end on, Bob. Bob and Alex, um, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you on this project and, and thank you so much for all the hard work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fergus. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard a conversation with Fergus Hansen, Director of Aspies International Cyber Policy Centre, Alex Capri, Research Fellow at the Heinrich Foundation, and Professor Bob Clark, Senior Aspie Fellow and former Chief Defence Scientist. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.